to Inspiration from the Couch. I'm Avery. I'm Jamie. And I'm Lucy. We are psychologists and moms. Join us as we discuss what we've figured out, what we've yet to figure out, and what there's just no figuring out. It's sure to be fun, and you may be inspired along the way. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today where we will be talking about seeking professional support. So for people who might be seeking treatment, um, the mental health field can feel really overwhelming and kind of unwieldy at times, Um, especially if you've never been into it. And there was actually a lot about the mental health field. I don't think I really realized until I was in graduate school and, and being a professional, you kind of start to learn about some of the nuances. So our goal today is really to help break it down in a way that helps it feel more understandable and more accessible. Um, for you. So let's start and talk a little bit about how does someone even know if they need professional support? Yeah. So I think one thing we talk about is like this term of like clinical significance or like impact on daily functioning, right? That's kind of a concept that we talk a lot about in therapy. And really what that means is your ability to function and how much is is whatever this is, anxiety, depression, eating disorder, affecting your ability to function. And we kind of think about it in relationships, at work, in your personal life, like, you know, and are there things that you are either unable or are very difficult to do? because of whatever is going on. So an example might be that if you are really struggling with depression and you're able to peel yourself out of bed and get to work, but then you come home and you fall right back into the couch, you're getting to work, but you're not functioning the other part of your day. Like it's really impacting your ability to go out to dinner with friends or interact with your child or that kind of thing. So I think that's in my kind of, like that's kind of a, a clear marker of needing additional services you're not functioning or not able to function at the capacity that you're used to. And I think too, even just a a broader way of looking at it is have your stressors overwhelmed your ability to cope. And if you're, if, if that is the case and you maybe don't have the support in your social network or family or whatever, that might be the time to then seek out a mental health professional or someone along those lines to help you get more resources to cope. Mm-hmm. Jamie, when you said that, I had this picture of the seesaw mm-hmm. where like stressors are on one end and cope is at the other. And those are going to kind of go up and down. But when you said that about overwhelm, I'm thinking the stressors are like stuck in the up position and the ability to cope is stuck in the down position. And you're not, you're feeling kind of stuck. Like you're not able to get that back in balance. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's, everybody has their own level of like chronicity as far Mm -hmm. as, you know, how much they're able to like what their capacity is really. I kind of look at it in that way. Like what's their capacity to be able to kind of like hold all of these things together at the same time. And um, if you are, you know, feeling like you can't juggle anymore, it might be, might be time to come in Mm -hmm. and it it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, like you're falling into a, a deep depression. I mean, there are so many reasons why people come in. I mean, the three of us have all of our own specialties of who we work with. And, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, problems and living that you just can't seem to get on top of. And you just need some extra support, ideas, objectivity, whatever, when you want to come in. 
sometimes I think of it too, and I'll talk with clients about this. Like sometimes we are in what I think of as more of a crisis mode where we actually really have to have professional support, right? There's not Mm -hmm. a lot of gray area, like something has to be done. And then I think that there are these other points where it's a lot more gray. Like maybe we could cope on our own. Like maybe there's some other things we could do, but it's really, really helpful to kind of have a safe space to be able to kind of talk about what's going on and to be able to look at things a little differently. So sometimes we think about like a root canal versus like regular maintenance and hygiene. And I think sometimes therapy can just be a self-care practice, even if there's nothing urgent or totally out of whack. So it can be used kind of differently depending on where you are and what you need. Um, How does professional support differ from good friends, right? So that's sometimes what you'll hear from people like, well, why can't I just talk to a friend about it? You know, it's interesting because I think each of us are both professionals and I mean, you are good friends of mine. I think I think even about our different conversations, the different conversations the three of us have, sometimes it's about consultation. Sometimes it's just about what's going on in our lives and how those differ from the conversations we have with our patients. I mean, one of the biggest differences is the, is the goal, right? So like Lucy, if you and I are sitting down talking about what's going on for us, our goal is, is connection and belonging for sure. But it's, it's a very two-sided conversation. I'm hearing about what's going on in your life. You're hearing about what's going on in my life. And the goal is really just to connect and to feel that sense of support, which is not to be overstated. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Um, but in therapy, it's a one-sided conversation with the expressed intent or goal to work on just the one person's development, progress, coping issues, right? And so while we may talk, each of us, about some about something that's called personal disclosure, right? We may talk about how this relates to something that's going on in our lives. It's with the goal of helping the patient or the client to make that progress in their ability to cope, their ability to manage. Yeah, I talk with my students, we need to think about sort of the difference by sort of applying the grandma rule. <laughs> if you can go to your grandma and get what you need from your grandma, Aww. then you may not need to come and see me, you know, yeah, as, a, as a therapist. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. That's really good. I also think with the difference with friendship, I mean, this is why as providers, we actually don't treat our own friends and family, right? And so all of us have kind of kids approaching the teenage years. And I mean, they don't listen to a thing we say, right? And 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 not only that, but it's hard to keep your objectivity, that's right. right? And so I think that that's the benefit of a therapist too, is it's someone who is more neutral, a third party, you're not in the mix of it. And so you can hear it a lot better and kind of get a different sort of support because it's kind of, I don't know if cleaner would be the right word, but like not as messy. Right. Well, and, and I think the times that I've, I've walked through a crisis with a friend as a friend, I'm acutely aware of how that is very different. Um, there's not a time limit, right? It's not a, a 45 to 50 minute session that that we kind of like talk through what's going on. And we don't have as many services. I can't tell a friend, okay, well, I'm going to call your psychiatrist. And then there's just a lot that you can offer in a professional setting that's going to be super inappropriate to offer to a friend. I mean, you're not probably going to tell a friend that you're going to call and help them to get to the emergency room. I mean, maybe, but like that's, that's a different setup. And on the flip side, I think we need both. Right? Oh, Does that yeah. make sense? And so 100%. therapy is not intending to substitute for friendship by any means, because like you're saying, we do need a friend who we can call at nine o'clock at night or like go, go drive someplace with or get away for the weekend or whatever it may be that you're just not going to do with your therapist. So they feel very different needs and both needs are really, can be really important. What routes of professional support are available to people? I think way more than they think. 
Because we're psychologists and that's just like one little subset. So let's even let's even start with like mental health and talk about the different types of like providers available there. Perfect. So I think one of the big questions I get a lot is psychiatry versus psychology. So psychiatry or psychiatrists are people that have gone to medical school that prescribe medication. Now, where it gets a little complicated is that some psychiatrists provide only medication. Some psychiatrists provide therapy and medication, but they are people that have gone to medical school and can write a prescription. Psychologists are people that have gone to graduate school, often getting a PhD. I mean, I think you actually have to have a PhD to call yourself a psychologist. So we are PhD doctors and have gone to graduate school, but do not write prescriptions for medication. So our specialty areas would be more therapy and testing. Although recently, are there still states yep, where psychologists right. can have right. prescription privileges if they do some like continuing education just to be able to prescribe psychotropic medications? But generally speaking, yes, that's not in our wheelhouse. And then there are other providers that can also provide therapy, right? So I know like LPCs, That's L- licensed professional li- counselors mm-hmm. and other licensed counselors, right? So and there's like a license, social workers, license, mm-hmm. right. And licensed marriage and family therapists. Yes. And like specialties in substance use and addiction. That's right. So licensed chemical dependency counselors. Um, so that's kind of like within the realm of therapy, psychologists can do therapy. And then there are other licensed professionals that can also do talk therapy for different specific areas, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it really just, I think the letters behind their name will indicate it. Yeah, it is. It's like an alphabet soup. And so, you know, as consumer of mental health services, you might have to do a little bit of research to see, you know, what is this person's training, which a lot of times is an important question to ask, like, what are their specialties? What services are you looking for? Do they provide those services? Because not everybody is created equal. And there's so many differences, right? So that's sometimes people are like, oh, if they have a doctor, does that mean they're better than someone who doesn't? And I say not at all, right? Like doctor degrees are longer in school than master's degrees, but you can, there's so many individual differences. So I think you can have a lot of master's level clinicians who are fabulous, excellent therapists. You may have a lot of PhDs who are like not great therapists. Um, and you can have a wonderful therapists that are not great fit, a great fit for you. I and mean, at the end of the day, we're at most of all human. And so just like, I'm not going to be friends with everybody. I'm not going to be a great fit with everybody. And so I think, yes, training specialty area that can kind of help to narrow your search. But at the end of the day, it's going to also be like, how do you feel in the room? How do you feel about their office policies? How do you feel about their location? How do you feel about the way that you interact? There are a lot of factors that can kind of be important as you're making a decision. And really that goodness of fit and that relationship that you have with whoever it is that you're you're seeing is really one of the better predictors of having a positive outcome for therapy is being able to establish that therapeutic relationship with your provider. So if you are happy with your provider, terrific. Hopefully things will work out if you're if it's not so great with your provider, you know, something that I always tell my clients that come in, you know, if we're not a good fit, one, I'd like for you to let me know and hopefully I'll be clued into that too. But you can you know, there's a lot of us. (laughs) There are a lot of us. And so you will be able to find somebody if you, you know, shop around a little bit, just like you shop around for other things. Mm -hmm. And just a little side note on that. That is true. There are a lot of us. Also, right now, we're aware it's hard. It's hard. A lot of a lot of therapists have very long wait lists, and it can be difficult to find that care because we are kind of in a mental health crisis between the pandemic and other, the other related stressors over the last year and a half. Like, I think it has been 
a little more or a lot more difficult to find that individual care. And that's kind of part of why we're trying to talk about this today is kind of demystify it. So you kind of know what you're looking for if you're if you're feeling like you're in that spot. But I love that sense that that phrasing shopping around that you were totally allowed to meet with a few different providers, you know, see how it feels. I think that you can read about them and kind of get a sense. But sometimes being in the room or having a conversation, just your intuition will kind of let you know one way or another. Right. Different providers have different approaches to therapy. And and I actually feel like that's maybe less important. It's probably important if you have like a certain issue you're coming in for. There are some people who specialize in that or not. And sometimes that can be an important factor. But often that kind of feel in the room is really important. And as Jamie said, you're totally allowed to tell us, like, I don't think this is a good fit or I'm not sure about it. Like, you're not going to hurt our feelings. And that's so helpful because then we can determine, is this fit issue something that we can address? Like, does this feel like a not great fit because I don't like the way I have to schedule or I don't like your availability or just feel more like a personality fit? Like you're too, like, I'm a pretty direct person. I'm pretty direct in therapy. And sometimes that's not a great fit for people. And I think that that can be, well, that's probably not going to change for me. And let's find somebody that might be like, have a, a different feel in the room because it's important to consider. And it's something that we all know and are really actually very welcoming to hear about if you're picking up on that. And then one other note before we finish with the roots of professional support that are available. Individual therapy is the bulk of what the three of us do, but there's also group therapy. There's marital family, marital therapy, family therapy. So there's different modes and then there's different levels of care is what we call them. And so we are all outpatient providers, right? We tend to do weekly appointments with people, especially at the beginning of therapy. And then they're kind of higher levels of care. So for people who have more acuity or who are struggling more, and maybe that might be an intensive outpatient program, those are typically about three days a week, about three hours each day. Then there's kind of a step up from that, which is a partial hospitalization program, which you tend to spend most of the day, nearly every day there. And then there are inpatient or residential programs, which is when you go and kind of stay 24 hours a day for those. So sometimes we can step up or down depending on what's going on and what we might need. Anything else about kind of treatment options from that standpoint? So, yeah, I mean, I think I think mostly when an individual enters into therapy, they can expect that it's going to be a weekly 45 to 50 minute session. We're not in the business of trying to. I think the word sometimes people use is like commit people or hospitalize people. That's really more of like a conversation of, hey, when we've tried the least restrictive or kind of, in you know, like the least amount of therapy and if it's working, that's great. And if it's not working, we have lots of things we can try, um, whether it's group or family or medication. And, that, and there are lots of different avenues that we can use to get, get a person better. But there are these other options, these higher level of care options that are available as well. So. And then there's adjunctive therapies, what I think of those as well, and that may be like acupuncture, right? Or biofeedback or neurofeedback. So these other methods, art therapy, equine therapy. Yoga, mindfulness. I mean, there's a lot of, of things that kind of get in a, in a in more indirect route at this same idea of like balancing, to your point, the stressors and the coping. Yeah. Okay. So what happens in the therapy office, right? So if someone is coming in for the first time, how does that tend to go? I think it kind of varies office to office. But in general, I think there are a couple components. I mean, one, you're probably going to need to fill out some sort of paperwork, whether that's online or whether that's in person, where you're going to have to probably give some information about your background and then also probably sign what's called an informed consent, which basically just says, this is what we're going to be doing in here. This is how I run my therapy. This is how it's going to cost how much it's going to cost, kind of just an, an overview of like what it's going to look like and then kind of an agreement of how that's going to go. 
And even before that, like when you find somebody that you're interested in working in, probably you're going to shoot them an email or give them a call. And um, a lot of times providers will talk to you on the phone for 10, 15 minutes to get an idea of what's going on with you to even assess like they're on the phone. Is this in my competency area? Can I be helpful to this individual? And I think for all of us, you know, and it's something that I, I have actually in my paperwork, my intake paperwork, I don't I really try the best that I can to not take on clients that aren't a good fit with what it is that I do. So I don't take on clients that I don't think that I can help. I will refer those individuals during that consultation call to other providers that I know might be a better fit right off the bat. And there are a lot of reasons that you might not be a good fit. I mean, whether it's age ranges, I think we each kind of see a slightly different age range of people. Um, It may be specialty areas. I know I work a lot with anxiety and depression and Lucy works a lot with eating disorders. Jamie's work works a lot with trauma and other things that are, I mean, so we have kind of some, some overlap for sure, but there are different areas that we feel more competent in treating. And I think also too, that's where that initial phone call, which I think often happens, whether it's with a provider or even with an assistant or a, or a like office staff person. I think that happens less often nowadays. I, and I think that there's maybe, I don't know if you'll notice this an age difference, right? So if parents are calling about kids, I tend to get phone calls, right? But if it's like maybe college age or like young adult who wants to come see me directly, I tend to get emails. So kind of some some differences. Um, So yeah, so usually there is that some sort of like filtering process of like, hey, I'm accepting new patients or not, or this is kind of the services I provide. This is what I'm looking for. So that usually when you come in for the first session, there's some idea that this is probably a good fit or has a, a, a chance to be a good fit. Then you'll usually get that kind of paperwork, whether it's the background or the informed consent. And then you'll go about like scheduling kind of either that first session, a lot of times that's online now, um, and then follow-up sessions. Yeah. And the first session and even the first few sessions are sometimes thought of as like an initial consultation where we're still trying to hammer out like, who are you? Who am I? How do we fit? How will this work together? Yeah. And and oftentimes that first session is a very different session. Um, It's more of like a interview or getting to know each other. And um, a lot of times patients can actually really benefit from that because it feels so nice to just tell the story of what's going on. So I'm not, I'm not saying that that doesn't feel like a, a beneficial part of it, but it often will be different. Like a lot of times it takes a couple of sessions to kind of get an idea of what's going on. And then you kind of shift into more of like the treatment, you know, what, whatever the intervention is going to be. Yeah. And that's the way that I explain it to individuals that come in is that the first few sessions are sort of what I term like an assessment kind of period of therapy where I'm trying to get a handle on what's going on with them, get their history and start to formulate how I might be of of service to them um, and, you know, work with them and do it in a collaborative way. And then when we're sort of more towards the end of that assessment period is when we really try to iron out like goals for therapy and what it is that they're wanting and, and talk about how do we want to get there. So, you know, this is what you want to do. I can help you get there in a lot of different ways, but what's going to be the best approach for you. And I love that word collaborative. I think we all probably work in a pretty collaborative way where sometimes I think of it that, that the client is the expert on themselves, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm supposedly the expert on the, the therapy process, but that I'm not there to tell them what to do or how to do it, right? And I'm, I'm not there to kind of, I don't know, fix anything or provide advice, right? We're there to kind of walk this journey together. Alongside, yeah. absolutely. What about the investment? So therapy can be a big investment of time and resources and emotional energy. Absolutely. All of those things. And and sometimes I, I think it's important to consider that 
sometimes therapy can make things a little bit worse before they get better. Um, like I said, that first few sessions kind of just share, telling the story can sometimes make us feel a whole lot better. Just getting it out in the open, clearing the air, getting it off our chest can be really so freeing and so nice. Um, what I find after those first few sessions is sometimes it does get a little bit harder, right? Because we're trying to change and change requires loss. I mean, in some ways, shape or form, if you're going to change your behavior, that means you're going to experience some loss, Um, loss of the way that you used to do things, loss of even maybe like dynamics of relationships. I mean, there, it changes hard. If it wasn't, we wouldn't, we would be doing it easily without help. And, and so I think that that there's this sense I get sometimes it's like, well, now I feel a little bit worse. Like I don't feel better. You're supposed to make me feel better. And of course that's our long-term goal. I mean, none of us would be doing this work if we didn't have the goal of wanting to help people to feel better, but it is hard work. You are going to be talking about things that can be uncomfortable and you're going to be trying collaboratively. Absolutely. The therapist isn't going to tell you to do something and make you do something you're not comfortable with, even if you're, you know, you're discussing that, but you are going to be working on doing your life, showing up in your life in a different way. And that's tough. And it's going to require some, some energy, some focus, and it can be hard to do. Um, The goal of course, is it makes things easier over time, but it's hard initially. Yeah. And that tends to be one of the big barriers to treatment for people, this belief and and the actual experience that it's uncomfortable. And it is. Yeah. It's a commitment. I mean, it's, it is a commitment, you know, just time-wise financially, it's a commitment really to yourself um, and to the therapy relationship as well. So it's a, a lot to, to take into consideration. And I encourage people, you know, not to just sort of like jump in lightly, but really think about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're right too. There's the, the one therapy hour a week, mm-hmm. right? But then that there's all those other hours between sessions. And I often talk to clients about there's, sometimes I do the math about however many hours there are in a week. What would it be like 168 or something? 65? I don't know. Uh, my mental math is not oh, as yeah. sharp as it once was, but a lot of hours in the week. And if you're only in therapy one hour, like we're not going to see a lot of change if that's the only place we're talking about, thinking about, or like working to do things differently. And so often there's also not only what you do in the session, but then what it prompts kind of between sessions. Right. I talked about that a lot of times, like, like athletics in school, like if we only played together as a team on Saturdays at, on game day, we wouldn't get a lot better very fast. But if we practice on Tuesday, Thursday as well, then we're going to get a lot better. And even though I love what I do, I love being in my therapy room. I know it's not the favorite place for most people to be. And if we're going to make progress more quickly, having that practice, having that outside of session work is, is really going to get us there. What are some of the other barriers to treatment? It's expensive. I mean, it's expensive. It's, it's expensive. I don't know exactly the price range, but I think you can usually count on it being a hundred. $200 $200 a session in that range. Um, and if you're going to be meeting weekly and that's, that's out of pocket, if you're not using insurance, which a lot of people do take insurance, but it is, it's a financial commitment for sure. And as I said, there are ways to get in network benefits and to be able to have insurance to pay for it, but you will still be responsible for some payment. And so there's a financial, there certainly is a financial piece that can't be overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. And there are differences in the insurance policies. And sometimes that can be difficult difficult for individuals to figure out and it can get kind of 
clunky and gray and also too trying to figure out what providers accept insurance and who doesn't. And then with insurance comes along a whole host of other things, which has to do with, you know, is there a session limit? Some insurances only allow so many sessions, especially if you have an HMO type of plan. And then also too, there are limitations on things that they may cover or not cover. Additionally, if you're using your insurance benefits, you the provider has to provide a diagnosis because insurance, just like with everything else, has to determine that the service is medically necessary. So that's something to think about, too. Like, do I want a diagnosis in my medical record? Because it does follow you. It can follow you around. And then there's the whole issue of confidentiality in that the health insurance companies can request records, look at treatment plans, making sure that you're you're making progress. So there's a lot to think about on whether you want to use insurance benefits or just pay out of pocket. So barriers, the time, the cost, the deciding, am I going in insurance or not insurance? Who am I going to see? What other barriers? I think right now there's a, a big barrier to availability that I was referencing earlier, but I think I think it is right now, I know I will say in Dallas, I think it is, it, it's been hard to find a lot of providers that are sec- accepting new patients. I think a lot of people have gone to like a waitlist system. And so that, I mean, I think, I think that helps that you can get on that waitlist. I expect that that will change. I, I think that we're just kind of trying to meet the need that's that's really great right now. I, that is a barrier I think people can anticipate and it's it's not an insurmountable one, but I think having to wait a few weeks is probably going to be about the rule here rather than the exception. Which is not ideal, right? So a lot of people who are seeking treatment do so because they are in crisis in some form or fashion and wanting more immediate relief. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think maybe something else too that could get in the way of treatment is stigma around it, around therapy and maybe not having the most supportive people in your in your circle who maybe don't believe in therapy or don't believe in getting outside support. And sometimes that will prevent people from from coming in when they really would like to. Well, sometimes people's own judgments, like I should be do it, be able to do it on my own. And if I need help, I'm weak in some ways. That can be a barrier and also ambivalence around change. And so sometimes this fear, you know, once again, with eating disorders, I always have to tell clients like, I'm not going to take it away. I, I can't, even if I wanted to, but I'm not going to, because sometimes we dig in and like, there's this ambivalence, part of me that wants to change, part of me that doesn't, part of me that wants to do something different, part of me that doesn't want to give up things the way they are. And that can kind of complicate the process. What are some of the myths we encounter about therapy? One of the things I hear a lot that always surprises me is that it feels um, indulgent, like a lot of parents will tell me, well, we we didn't want to indulge her. We didn't want to like, I don't know, almost like it, it's it's something that's overly indulgent or overly, I don't know. I, even as I'm trying to explain it, I can, you can tell that I'm not quite sure what that means exactly. But it, it feels really like there's this barrier to either accessing that help because it feels like you should be able to do it yourself or you even feel like your family members should be able to do it themselves. And getting them this help is is in some way spoon feeding them maybe, or I don't know. I can't quite put my finger on that, but that's one thing I hear a lot. Yeah. A big thing I hear too, is that like, it should be fast. Like there over the years, a lot of people who feel like they should just need one or two sessions and we should be able to like wrap this shit up and be (laughs) done. Right. Or this idea that progress should be linear, right. Where I really think of the process, it's like a spiral, right. And maybe a spiral with like an upward trend, but that we kind of loop back down and that sometimes things feel better and then they feel worse. And 
quite often I'll have clients where like months down the road, therapy can be slow, especially for something like an eating disorder that is a very slow moving target for change. Like if you had a snake phobia, you could go someplace, not with me, because I wouldn't do that. But where and within like four hours, right, we could probably expose you and get rid of the phobia. But there's a lot of things that are much slower moving. Right. And it's one of those that is just going to take some time and that sometimes people come in and they're like, wow, things are different. I don't know where it changed or how it changed or what exactly happened. So I think the process can sometimes feel a little bit mysterious and not real like clear in terms of how it works. Yeah. And I think, too, sometimes individuals might come in and think that we're going to tell them what to do and that we're going to provide the answers to them. And if they just kind of sit down with their notepad and take some notes and that we'll give them just really wonderful, great suggestions, advice or or whatever, and then it's all going to work out. And again, back to that collaborative, (laughs) that collaborative piece, not so much uh, if you're coming in for advice. I think a lot of psychologists or therapists are going to not engage in that. We don't really, I mean, our goal is not to tell you what to do, but but to ask questions, open up, give you space to kind of listen to yourself and figure out what's the next right thing for you. And kind of to that, that idea of walking alongside and, and certainly trying to kind of guide with questions or space, but to, to really come to that decision together is really the goal of therapy. And the last myth I'll mention is that belief that maybe you'll become dependent on the therapist right? Or that I'll have to be in therapy the rest of my life, where I think really all of our goals is to get our clients to a point where they don't need therapy anymore and they can kind of do it on their own. And I'll be honest, sometimes I think of therapy as something that we'll be in and out of. I mean, that's what I found in my my own life, just because of the way I see it and, and how I find it helpful, but that the goal is not to get someone to be dependent and be permanently in therapy. We're not doing our jobs. If Yeah. I mean, a big piece of what we do is help individuals really get in touch with their own autonomy. And I don't want to take that away by trying to foster some sort of condition in which people are dependent upon therapy. Like I view people as very capable, it's just sometimes they lose sight of that. And so one of my jobs is to help them see that that they can do these things on their own. Yep. All right. Well, let's see. Anything else that y'all want to add? Anything with the do try this at home or any last notes about this? So one of the things I found most helpful, both in my work with other people and in my own therapy myself, is that sometimes therapy and and a therapist can kind of be a container to hold on to the things that you can't hold on to. So I think I'm a person I've struggled with depression. I work with a lot of people that struggle with depression. And one thing that people with depression lose sight of is hope. And a lot of times therapy and therapists can kind of hold that hope for you when you're missing it. I think similarly thing, you know, whether it's acceptance, hope, belonging, there's a lot of things that, that just you need some help containing and holding on to. And therapy um, can really be beneficial in, in doing that. Yeah, and I think if you can come into therapy, and granted, not everybody does this, but it come in with a minimal level of willingness <laughs> and openness, that can take you very far in, in therapy. We can do a lot with that. I guess my final words would be, I am a big believer that there's lots of different paths that we can follow, right? And that for some people, therapy is great. For some people, there are other paths that feel more beneficial. And so I guess encouragement to just be curious for yourself, like what is it that you need? And then how can you access whatever that might be? 
All right. So I think that's going to do it for today. Please join us next week. We are going to have our book club. The book is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. And again, you do not have to read this book ahead of time. We're going to give you the cliff notes for it. But join us next week. Thanks so much. And we look forward to seeing you then. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Subscribe to Inspiration from the Couch wherever you access your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. Visit us on our website at inspirationfromthecouch.com. Music